0: Welcome to The Real Talk. I'm Raquel Ramirez, your host and real estate professional, here to bring you insightful conversations, expert advice, and powerful stories about what really goes on in life, love, divorce, and real estate. Are you ready? Let's get real. Hello, and welcome to the show. How are you doing, Doug?
1: I'm doing great. How are you?
0: I'm doing pretty well, thank you. I am really excited to have you on the show today. I've been trying to get you on for a while. For those of you (laughs) who are tuning in today, I'm speaking to a friend and close, uh, let's call you a colleague, even though I'm not an attorney, I consider you a colleague, Uh, Douglas Hiller. You are a member of my NADP group, and I'm really, really excited to know you. I'm happy to be speaking with you today. And I don't know if I've ever told you, but I'm actually really impressed about uh, your education. Um, just to give you a little bit of background sure. on Doug, sure. uh, aside from the fact that he was born and raised in Bergen County, New Jersey, he actually moved to Atlanta to attend Emory University, which is pretty prestigious, if you ask me. Then uh, I think you got a bachelor's degree in Spanish and international studies, and then you actually moved down to Miami, where you got your law degree from UM, correct?
1: Correct. I did a joint degree program at
0: UM. That's right, because then you got a master's in business, uh, business administration with a dual concentration in finance and international business. That's pretty of impressive, course. Doug. I got to be honest. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that is pretty impressive. And then, of course, you grew up in a household uh, where both your parents were in real estate. So it was inevitable, of course, that you go into real estate as uh, as your field of law. Your mom was a realtor. Your father was a commercial real estate appraiser who I think also had his broker's license. And then since 2004, actually, you've been handling various areas of law related to real estate, like real estate closings, title work, preparation, review of commercial and residential leases, landlord-tenant disputes, condo association collections, and representation and construction litigation. And then, of course, let's not forget the fact that you also work with divorce-related clients. So you handle a lot of things related to refinancing, removing uh, spouses from the notes, I even read somewhere around here that you've been involved in partition cases, which is really interesting. Um, And then, of course, you know, I just I think very highly of you for your experience and all the work that you've done. Um, And so without further ado, welcome.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. I, I know we've been trying to coordinate and it's great to be here. So thank you for inviting me.
0: No, of course, of course. It's really my pleasure. Um, And I've heard you speak before. You've given great presentations. I think today we're going to cover tenancy disputes, evictions and things like that, which is actually not a really common topic. I don't really hear much about that. And I'm in the real estate industry, Um, but there is a lot of misconceptions. There's a lot of issues that surround those things. Um, And you could be like when I say you, I mean, in general, someone could be a tenant. They could also be a landlord. Um, there could also be an investor. You could have um, tenants, you know, somewhere in your family. Maybe you inherited a property from your parents uh, or you co own a property with your sibling and you've got tenants in there. And then sometimes people don't really know what to do and it gets a little complicated. So I'm hoping you could shed some light so people can learn a little bit about that today.
1: Absolutely. Um, yeah, it can get. Difficult and convoluted on both sides, whether you're a (laughs) landlord or a tenant. Now, more often than not, I I represent landlords. I have represented tenants. um, And usually on the tenant side, you have issues that are black and white, you know, like a landlord has to, if they're going to make a claim against the deposit under Florida statutes, you have to send the, the letter via certified mail within 30 days of the tenant vacating the premises. And more often than not, Landlords don't, Um, you know, they're, they're, you know, they give excuses, oh, I didn't have the forwarding address. Fine, send it to your property address and in the mail, get forwarded. Um, Ask the tenant for their forwarding address. But the the language in 83.49 says, failure to send that notice is a, the landlord forfeits their right to assert a claim against the security deposit for repairs. Landlord can always file a lawsuit to get the, the, the money back. Right. Uh, I'm about to actually file a lawsuit along those lines where the tenant left numerous repairs and you know tried to work it out. You know, it doesn't matter if you if you forfeit your right to put a claim against the deposit. You still have the right to file a civil lawsuit. So right. that's totally different. But it's funny in Florida people often don't know, and not you in particular, but I've worked with other realtors who they you know, they're representing a landlord and the landlord wants to sell the property. And they contact me and say, hey, this tenant is two months behind, three months behind, sometimes eight months behind and they want to sell the property. And usually my response is, why did you wait so long? <laughs> yeah, you know, like no. There, there's no requirement that you wait three months or six months. This isn't during COVID, um, you know, back during COVID, obviously there was there was a time where especially yeah. residential evictions were on hold. A But I I had one realtor send me, here's the seven-day notice to the tenant to pay rent. And I'm like, no, it's not a seven-day notice. It's a three-day notice to pay rent. And (laughs) and I'm sure you're familiar with it. And and it's it's really black and white in the statute, but most people don't read. They they, they either take things from the internet, they hear from third parties, Mm
2: -hmm. Um,
1: you know, and there's, there's different types of evictions. Like there's different ways to remove someone that you don't want living in a property. You know, we, we've talked about this before. Mm-hmm. There are evictions. Right. And that's where there's a landlord-tenant relationship. There is uh, unlawful detainer, which there's no obligation to, to pay rent. It's, um, you know, it's like when you have a someone staying there for- Month to month. Without paying rent for, for a period of time, like a friend is staying. Um, and then you have the ejectments. Um, so they're, they're, they're all related. You're trying to remove someone, but it's a different statute. It's a different procedure. But the most common, the most common by far is, is
0: an eviction. eviction.
1: And mm-hmm. the vast majority of evictions are for non-payment of rent. Um, that's, at least in my experience, that's probably at least 80 to 90% of the evictions that I filed are non-payment of rent.
0: I can imagine, um, yeah.
1: And with the rents as high as they are, listen, you're the realtor, but with the rents as high as they are in Miami, the sooner That's you right. move on something like that, I, what's the average rent now? Like 2800
0: to 3000 Oh my God, it could be even And you're
1: looking at that. studios and, and oh, one-minute yeah. apartment. I, I think the average rent in Miami is somewhere close to $3,000 a month.
0: Well, I'll tell you, I was looking, I was actually just looking for a client uh, who inherited a property. She needs to rent it out. It's a small 3-2. I'm talking about, I think it's just shy of 1,600 square feet. And there are some comparables out in the market that are renting in the 4,000s. I'm talking about West Kendall. This isn't like a 20... 20- 22 home that's got all the bells and whistles. It's not, you know, it doesn't have an enormous backyard or a pool. It's 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 nothing extraordinary. And not that there's anything wrong with Kendall, but Kendall is a suburban area. It's not Coral Gables. It's not on the water. It's got a very small footprint, and there are comparables in the high threes and low fours. It's ridiculous.
1: Listen, I I live uh, as you know just outside Coral Gables, walking distance. And if I go back pre-COVID, maybe five years ago, I think a two-bedroom, two-bath in my building was probably leasing for twenty-two to twenty-four hundred. Now it's close to four thousand dollars.
0: Yep, I remember so. when I used to live out there in a one, one and a half for 1950 $1, dollars, and I was like, man, that's. But you know, I loved where I lived. I had a great condo. It was just beautiful. Um, that was, that was way pre COVID. That was like, (laughs) that was like eight, nine years ago. (laughs) So I can't imagine what that unit in that building is renting for now. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's close to 3000.
1: It's, it's crazy, but, but that, that, but that's my point. You know, when someone has a tenant that's not paying, the sooner you move to a victim, the better off you'll be. I, I have, um, one situation and listen, Depending on the, and not to sound bad, but depending on the socioeconomic position of the tenant or tenants, right? sometimes it's really hard to find them. Some tenants are really good at getting lost, not being <laughs> on the grid. And so if you want to sue them for damages, because there, there's two components to an eviction. You know, like eviction is one, you want possession. You want them out. You want your property back. You want to be able to re-rent it and bring and bring money in. Right, taxes, insurance, maybe a mortgage payment, and you've got to pay all
0: that. Right.
1: The sooner, the better. When when someone comes to me and their tenant is three, six, or eight months behind,
0: that's crazy. I
1: want to pull my hair out and say, (laughs) you know, it's it's frustrating because it's it's not that difficult of a process, um, but it's a time sensitive process. You know, you post a three day notice. Sorry, go ahead. You have a question.
0: No, no, no. Yeah, actually, I was going to ask you about that to elaborate, because I think people do think that it is a difficult process. There is this notion. And again, I don't normally get involved in evictions because I do mostly sales. And when I'm working on the lease side, I'm helping a landlord, you know, rent the place or I'm helping a tenant find a place. So the eviction processes really have never anything to do with me. But um, but I think from hearing landlords and hearing, you know, the stories, you know, in the industry, I think people think that the eviction process is a complicated one, that it's mostly against landlords. So why don't you go ahead and elaborate on that a little bit?
1: So the eviction process itself is a, you're entitled to what's called summary procedure. It's it's a, it's a streamlined uh, type of lawsuit. If someone sues you for damages, They have to file a complaint. They have to serve you with a summons. And the summons gives you 20 days to respond. You can file at at the end of the 20 days. You can have an attorney file a notice of appearance, a motion for extension of time, a motion to dismiss. There's ways to drag it out. Right. On the civil side. Now, on an eviction, none of that is applicable. On an eviction, and you can have an eviction that also has to count for damages. So you have to serve two different summonses, a five-day summons and a 20-day summons. Okay. So the 5 day summons, you know, you, you post the 3 day notice, you wait 3 business days, the tenant still hasn't paid the rent and brought it current, boom. What happens? Okay, you file the complaint. You know, there is a little bit of a delay in the system because you have to file it. Of course, I file it online. Everything is e-filing now. Right. Yeah, I go on I go on the court system website, uh, I file the comp- prepare the complaint, file it online, and then I have to wait for a case number. And depending on how busy the clerk of the court is assigning case numbers, sometimes it's within 12 hours or 24 hours. Sometimes it's when the courts are really busy, it's taking two to three days to get a case number because okay. the case can't move forward until you get that case number. Right. You get an email right away with we've got your your complaint and then you get an email, hopefully the same day or within 24 hours. It says, here's your case number. So once you have the case number, then you can prepare the summons. And the summons can get issued by the clerk. Um, You can either file it online and they issue it that way. It's a lot quicker if you walk it through. Like I'm in, my office is in Coral Gables. I can take the summons and go right to the clerk at the Coral Gables Courthouse. And they will, clerk will issue the summons. You pay the $10 per summons fee. If it's, say it's a husband and wife, you got two summonses for evictions. And you get it issued right then and there. A lot of the process servers will, you can email it to them and they'll walk it through and then just charge you for it. Uh, but that starts the process. So once you have that case number, give the summons, the complaint, give it to the process server. They're going to knock on the door. They try a couple of times. No luck. Then they post it on the door. That's that's the big difference between an eviction and an action for damages. If I'm suing you for damages, like I'm suing you, say, say Raquel, you owe $20,000 in rent.
2: Mm-hmm. The
1: process server has to deliver it to you or to an, you know someone who's an adult who lives in the house with you. If right. you had an adult child, um, yeah, they have to serve. They you. have to serve it you. But when it's an eviction, if they can't serve the person, then they ultimately post it on the door. And when they post it on the door, that's that's good service. You, you get a return of service from the process server. You file it in the court after the expiration of five business days. There's a series of documents you have to file: affidavit of non-payment of rent, non-military affidavit. You move for a clerk's default. You move for a. Uh, you get that. That sometimes is a delay of a couple of days. And then you move for the judge to enter a judgment of possession. Mm. And so once you get that judgment of possession, then you can, then you get what's called a writ of possession. Right. And the writ of possession is the document that tells the the sheriff to throw these people (laughs) on the street. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And that's, that's a whole nother set of fees.
0: Right. I heard you say that. Yes. (laughs)
1: <laughs> so it, what's interesting, um, you know, obviously, the United States, we very much against bribery, you know, but there's an there's an expedited fee system. Right. And, you know, it's not bribery. It's you pay a fee. If you want your eviction expedited. Great. You're going to pay the sheriff a fee because the sheriff in Miami County is overwhelmed with evictions. They're bogged down. Right. You know, if this was a smaller county, a lot less evictions, things get taken care of a lot, uh, a lot quicker. But once you get the judgment and you can either deliver the writ of possession to the clerk
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and they'll deliver it to the sheriff as long as you have have the check. Mm -hmm. But if you're an attorney like you couldn't do it, if you're a property owner, you can't walk through a writ of possession. As an attorney, I can go to the clerk, get the writ of possession issued and walk out of there with the issued writ. And I can hand deliver it or have a courier deliver it to the sheriff. You're not allowed to walk out with it because you're not an attorney. It's
0: interesting. A, this, yeah. I didn't know that. Okay.
1: So, and then you get into the different fees. I don't know if you want to go into them, but this, there's, you know, three different well, fees.
0: <laughs> the expedited fee, when you say expedited, does that mean like as soon as you turn it into the sheriff, they go that very same day? Do they go within 24 hours or we're looking at a couple of days? What's the expedition?
1: Okay. So your regular writ is $115. Okay. I don't think it's gone up in the last couple of days. Um, <laughs> it's $115 that you pay to the sheriff. And the sheriff will go out there in two to three weeks. Um, depending okay. on how busy the sheriff is. And post the writ of possession. Right. It's supposed to be posted within 24 hours. You know, posted pretty quickly
0: mm-hmm. and
1: in a conspicuous place. And it says you have 24 hours to get out. Okay, that's the short version. Um, on the hundred and fifteen dollars, it's going to take a couple weeks for the sheriff because you kind of go to the you know the bottom the of the list. Mm-hmm. There is a rush fee. It's three hundred and seventy-three dollars. Still not bad considering rents are no. three, four, five thousand dollars a month. Right. So the three hundred and seventy-three, the sheriff. It used to be they would go out there within forty-eight hours. My understanding is sometimes it's a little slower. It might be seventy-two hours. But they post it on the door within forty-eight to seventy-two hours for the three seventy-three, and sometimes that's enough. When a tenant gets a writ of possession, post it on their door. Sometimes they're gone. They skedaddle. They they're like, okay, within a
0: few hours. Yeah, <laughs> they don't want to be dragged out. Exactly.
1: So sorry, I was my device telling me low power.
0: Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I can see how that. Um... Yeah, I I can see how that's starting to take longer because 115, you said 115, right? 115 versus 300. Really, the difference is nothing. They're going to end up having to raise that if they don't want to start.
1: Well, the 373, it's still, even though they post it quicker, they're still not going out there for another two to three weeks to actually remove them.
0: Oh, So you're paying a rush
1: fee to post.
0: Just to post, I see.
1: Now, there's one final writ fee, rush fee, and uh, they don't have it in Broward. I've asked if they have it in Broward. So the only, they have it in Miami-Dade, and it's $1,636, if I'm not mistaken. Oof. And that one, depending <laughs> on when you get it to the sheriff, they either post the writ the same day as you get it to them or the next day. Like if you got, I got it to them in the afternoon, they'd be going out the next morning. Right. Right. And they go back to remove the tenants in like forty-eight hours. Oh. They actually go. So I, I had one. You know, not a lot of people like. Oh, but it's sixteen hundred dollars. I'm like, it's sixteen hundred, and you're not losing four weeks of rent. Right. right. So I had one of those, and it was, um, it was a couple of years ago. There was there was more litigation involved. There was a dispute over title, and we got we won that lawsuit, and so then we got rid of possession. It was a tenant who tried to steal a property. Long story. Mm, Um, (laughs) But we got the writ of possession and it was now owned by an estate. And we paid that $1,600 fee. I got it to the sheriff on a Thursday morning. Saturday morning at 6.30 a.m., the sheriff was there (gasps)
2: knocking
1: knocking on the door. And I think (laughs) the tenant knew that we were going to move quickly because not only was the tenant already gone.
0: They cleaned on the way out. (laughs) I doubt it.
1: uh, quite the opposite they yes. demolished yeah the property
0: that's i mean sad.
1: fans lights smash ripped down toilet smash <sighs> window smashed. like Why the place was a, a disaster Why you know painting on that? the walls um it, you know it, it was one of those situations that's that, that that case alone is is the topic for another podcast yeah. um
0: That's so sad. I don't know why people do that. I mean, you you know, as a landlord, you have the right to receive, you know, rent for your property. This, these, these are the conditions. This is the rent. This is the lease. Whatever. These are the terms. You know, you have to make good on that. It's like I remember when I was um, a property manager uh, as a corporate banker. You know, during the Great Recession, of course, we used to take back some properties, and every now and again, we used to run into a home that was. I mean, it looked like a Jason Pollock painting on the inside. It was horrible. <laughs> People used to throw, you know, cement down the toilets. I remember walking yes. into a house where they stripped everything, kitchen that you couldn't tell. I mean, unless, I mean, yes, you could tell because you could see like where there were um, connections, you know, for plumbing and stuff, but they literally just severed every plumbing line, every electrical, all you could see were just torn up walls and just a blank canvas. You couldn't tell where the kitchen cabinets were. They took everything, everything. It was unbelievable. Like, how much effort does it take for you to do that? And who do you think you're getting back at? I mean, that's just so sad, but you're right. That's the topic for another well, conversation.
1: The amazing part, I, I guess what, what frustrated me with, in, in a situation like that you know, obviously, you got to file a p- police report.
0: Right. Um, right.
1: And in our situation, We we you know, my client was actually the personal representative of the estate filed a police report. But the the sheriff was like, probably not going to get anywhere. You know, you can't prove it was the tenant. Right. I'm like, I'm like, the writ was posted yesterday, the day before. And you're going to tell me some other person came in here in the last 48 hours and spray painted messages on the wall. Yeah. Like, you know, expletives. Right. You know. (laughs) You know, really nice of you just before Christmas, and you know, this and that. Yeah. They're personally
0: direct. It was me, yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and the sheriff's still like, yeah, good luck with that.
0: Yeah, we had we ran into those cases too at the bank. It's sad, but that's interesting that you would. Um Wow, so it's sixteen hundred bucks, and you get somebody out within basically like forty-eight hours, and that's the whole point of it, right? I mean, the sooner you get in there, the sooner you are able to evict someone. I think, well, aside from the obvious, which is the sooner you are able to re-rent the property to start collecting rents and paying your, you know, your expenses, your mortgage, your taxes, whatever. Um, you know, the the more you mitigate losing funds, but also the lesser the risk you run of having the tenant. I mean, in this case is, is really not a good example, but by giving them a few days, you reduce the risk of them actually doing harm to the property because they have to get out. You know, they're they're gathering their things, you know. So ideally or potentially you would reduce that risk, I'm assuming. I mean, I agree. But if you give somebody like two weeks, they're like they have time to like sit and plot. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, what are we gonna take? What are we gonna destroy?
1: Listen, and, and I've told clients who are landlords, and even though it's not in my financial interest to do this, because then I don't make money on filing an eviction, I okay. told them, listen, before I file, why don't you go negotiate with the tenant? Yeah. Why don't you go negotiate with the tenant? Offer them 500 bucks to move out.
0: Cash for keys. Um, mm-hmm.
1: You know, cash for keys. Exactly. Yep. Um, it's not just in the foreclosure market. If you offer them cash for keys,
2: mm-hmm. you
1: know, you save all those costs. Yeah. Can you get a judgment and are you entitled to or to get a judgment for attorney's fees and costs? You know, say the whole thing costs you between attorney's fees, costs, you know, filing fees, writ of possession. Say you do the 373 and the whole thing costs you about $1,500, mm-hmm. you know, service and process. It's also going to take you at least a month yeah. to get them out. Right. So wouldn't it behoove you to maybe offer $500, $1,000? Like if you're out in two weeks, I'll give you $1,000. Yeah. Um, because, you know, and that that's part of the issue with some mm-hmm. of the tenants. They mm-hmm. don't, a lot of times, they don't have the money to rent a new place. Yeah. And so they're they're like, listen, I I need time to save up money. And I've actually had tenants file those answers. Hmm. Which gets me to, you know, what I wanted to say before. Like, a lot of times, the tenants will find an answer. Oh, my God, I'm, I see your pinky. I was like, oh, <laughs> I, I, I knew you broke out. But a lot of the times tenants will fi- file an answer in the lawsuit in the five days. It's like, oh, the you know, my my I have medical problems and this happened to my child. And, you know, I'm experiencing all these kinds of difficulties. And the law in those situations, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on which side you're on, mm-hmm. doesn't care. Right. The the way Florida statutes for residential tenancies. Uh, in particular, reads, it's under 8360, is if the tenant doesn't do one of several things, the landlord gets an automatic default final judgment for possession. Yeah. They have to deposit the undisputed rent to the court registry.
2: Okay. If
1: there's a dispute over the rent, you know, Say the landlord's claiming the rent is 2800 and the tenant's like, no, it's 2500 Or maybe the tenant wasn't paying the full rent because of repairs that weren't made.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, the tenant
1: has to pay the undisputed rent into the court and file a motion to determine rents. Right. Or if the tenant claims that the rent was paid in full, that's like the one defense where you don't have to deposit the money. Tenant says, here are a bunch of
0: receipts. Receipts, uh-huh. My bank statements, whatever.
1: Now, I actually, you know, I love telling stories about funny cases. I had an eviction. I I had a client uh he's since passed away but he actually had a receipt book. You know the old carbon copy receipt yep. books? And that's how he would write his receipts to all of his tenants. He had multiple rental properties. And so they would get a carbon copy or they would get, you know, the white and he would keep the yellow. But he used the same coupon book, the same excuse me, same receipt book for all of his tenants. So the numbers would never be sequential.
2: Oh, my God.
1: So say he had 10 properties. He writes 10 receipts. They're, they're all going to be out of order. So I had one of his tenants who I filed an eviction against, um, filed a defense that she's paid and she forged receipts, forged his signature and filed those in the court. And I actually, because I'm intimately familiar and personally familiar with my clients, um, I was familiar with his bookkeeping system and his receipt right, system. Right, his registry. I've, I've seen them. I've seen his receipt books. I filed my own affidavit with the court saying, first of all, it's not his signature. His signature is forged. I've been his attorney for X number of years. And number two, he uses one receipt book for all of his properties. So they'll never be sequential. Her receipts were one, two, Two. three. Uh Because you know, they're all numbered in the the upper right side. And so I filed my affidavit with the court, filed a motion for final judgment. Within 24 hours, I had a default final judgment. I was actually out of the country when that happened. Um, And I was able to get the judgment because, you know, I looked at it carefully and I was like, something's wrong here. I'm like, that's not his signature. And this is not how he does his paperwork. I'm like, this is a forgery, complete forgery.
0: Clear (laughs) example why you need a good attorney with you. At all times, <laughs> I said it in previous podcasts. Mm-hmm. I love attorneys; they're such great resources for me, and and I'm always suggesting people hire an attorney for any and every reason. But um, well, not any so- reason, you know. I <laughs> guess <There's, there's, laughs> yes, like, don't
1: hire, don't hire an attorney to be your realtor. Okay.
0: <laughs> that is true. That is true. I second that. I second that.
2: <laughs> hire so a realtor. Really interesting.
0: Yes. Hire me and then I'll help you, you know, throughout the transaction process, but then we'll hire Doug so that we can actually perform the closing. See, that's how that works.
1: <laughs> exactly. That's another podcast about, in my opinion, why you hire an attorney and not a non-attorney title company.
0: Yes. But- oh my goodness. You know, we could do another podcast about that. That's actually a really good point. I... I don't use title companies for many, many years. I've been in real estate 20 years. I think I stopped using title companies 15 years ago, maybe. Um, I only work with attorneys and I encourage my buyers whenever, so a lot of, you know, believe it or not, a lot of buyers that I've been working with lately come fully stocked with like an entourage, an inspector, a lender, a like people that you wouldn't even imagine that they would know or have any ties to. And I've met several of them that have attorneys in their families or that know attorneys or that are, you know, friends of a friends of a family or somebody. And um, so, yeah, I I always encourage them to use attorneys for their closings. But and I'm not a God forgive me for saying that and for saying it publicly. I I don't uh, I'm not a fan of title companies for several reasons, but I do like attorneys for sure.
1: I know this is a totally different topic, and we can talk about it another day. But I, I had a client, who um, actually a realtor that I've, I've I've done closings with, and she was trying to get me to do the title on this closing. A client of hers who's bought other properties bought it. Uh, and I know we're totally off the topic of landlord tenant, but uh, no, no, that's just the But but she said, you know, you know, what are your fees? And I hear it's, it, you know, I charge a flat closing fee,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and whatever the title insurance is, and this person insisted on using their attorney, who is a personal friend. You know, who, yeah. who's not a real estate attorney. I think he specialized <gasps> no. in either. Immigration I, I law? Think, no, it wasn't immigration. <laughs> I think it was maritime law. Oh. And so he got his friend who does title. So like the the family friend was charging like $6,000. That's like three times. Title, listen, my closing fee, depending on how complicated, there are transactions where I have to micromanage.
0: Yeah, but normally
1: yeah, I yeah. think my my I think my our current closing fee is like
0: nine ninety five. Yeah, it's. I tell people that I would before they jump the gun, and I say, listen, it's very comparable. <laughs> you'd be surprised what attorneys charge for closings. You'd think that it's like a fifteen thousand. It's not. But you've got somebody who's on the right side of the law, who's looking at this very carefully, and who's going to be able to jump in when they see that something's wrong. The title company's not going to do that. And and for those title companies out there, please forgive me for saying that. I know that there are. Great title companies out there. that perform a great service, and they do have a they do have a place. My preference is not that. I work very closely with attorneys for different reasons, and so I have a preference. Um, You know, and it's just I've had a far better experience working, um, you know, with attorneys in general. So, so yeah, that's that is my personal preference. But people have this idea that by hiring an attorney, they're going to spend x amount more when in the reality it's very comparable i don't think i've ever met an attorney to charge six thousand dollars for a closing
1: no no no. that was just one attorney the one wow. who was not even doing the closing the other one was charging two thousand or three thousand dollars so between the two of them they were charging like nine thousand oh, no. and um Man. i think the most i've charged as a closing fee on a residential deal and it was a multi multi-million dollar deal where i had to i I spent hours mm-hmm. coaching Sorry, my my device was running low. I'm down to 5%, but <gasps> uh, I apologize. Um, this was kind of impromptu, so I didn't, you know, I was like, oh, my <laughs> charger's at home. It's getting close to, to closing time anyway. But on that one, which was a $7.5 million deal, I think my closing fee was $1,995. Oh, and my I put gosh. In for three to four times the amount of work I would on a normal transaction because it was so complicated. The house was in foreclosure. Um, there was daily accruing interest and it was interest at 24%. And so it was, it yeah, was it's a, a lot very work. difficult closing, um, but we got it done.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a lot of work. That's a lot of work. So I wanna bring it back to, um, cause I know you're running low on battery and I don't want to, to get caught <laughs> off this. Um, going back to, no, no problem going back to the tendency, you know, an eviction situation. Um, and I, we were talking about the eviction process and I know that people now at least should have a little bit more information as to how that actually works and why you'd want to get ahead of the problem before it, it becomes a financial burden. Because yes, after two, three, four months, you're talking about, let's say an average rent is $3,000. You could be out of pocket already like $15,000 paying a mortgage. And even if, and let's, Let's assume best case scenario, you own the property free and clear. You still have taxes to pay, you still have insurance to maintain. Those are right. expenses that are coming out of your pocket. And as a landlord, as a property owner, you have the right to, you know, to collect rent on that. So the idea, of course, is to get in there as soon as possible. You don't have to wait 30 days. You're not a bank. You don't have to let that thing sit in a system red flagging for six months before you can actually, you know, uh file a complaint with the court system. But let's say that as a landlord, not only do you you realize that this is going sour, right? That this tenant is problematic because of course, everything isn't as black and white, right? You've had a a good paying tenant for what? Let's say a year, two years, six years, whatever. And all of a sudden this tenant doesn't pay this month and you send them that notice and they don't get back to you. I mean, I think what happens a lot of times is that landlords are like, well, they've been a good paying tenant. They've maybe been late once or twice. They've paid me on time every other time. Let's give him a chance. And then the tenant comes back and says, hey, by the way, um, you know, I had to, um, you know, take a second job, whatever. I can't, you know, pay the full rent this month. You know, so those conversations start happening. And before you know it, it's been two months. It's been three months. And now the landlord is starting to realize, hey, I'm going to have to, you know, it's in other words, you don't necessarily know that your tenant's going to just cop out, you know, within the first three days of not paying you. But in addition to that, there could also be the instance in where there is damage, right? And it could be substantial. You might get away with, I don't know, a couple thousand dollars painting, cleaning, stuff like that. But in the case where there is a lot of damage, can you, like I think you said earlier, file two different complaints, right? Let's say like one for the eviction and the other one for damages. Can you do that?
1: Absolutely. It can be done as two separate lawsuits. Obviously, you have to pay two filing fees. Right. But it can be done as two separate lawsuits or it can be done in the same lawsuit. You can have count one for eviction and count two for damages. I have one pending right now. And the tenants got out before we even got to the writ stage. And we can't find them uh, because the process server couldn't serve them personally. He went to knock on the door with the 20-day summons. And so he, he posted the five-day. But we still haven't been able to serve them. So we still have an outstanding... Um, complain for damages actually. And it's funny, this one, part of the issue, part of the eviction was a non-monetary default. Huh? He, he did like a, um, the tenant, he did a, you know, I don't want to say a Hialeah, but, uh, you know, like a, a a ghetto Airbnb, Yeah. like he rented and you've, I'm sure seen it. He rents the property and then he sublets it, which is a violation. Your standard lease (laughs) has a paragraph in there. Yeah. The the realtor standard lease. You know, you must get the landlord's written permission, permission. to sublet. Mm-hmm. And he just sublet it out to a bunch of people. So, you know, rent rooms. <laughs> like six rooms rented out. The tenants partitioned a part. Of, they put up a wall. He was a contractor. He put up a wall and he oh rented out a room. God. Oh, my God. The things that happen, yeah. But That's you, you can file do. two separate lawsuits. Um, the advantage of doing it once at the same time is being able to serve the tenant. Um, right. Listen, especially on the lower end properties, mm-hmm. you know anything, you know, a lot of properties may be in homestead or something like that. sometimes it's hard to find them. You yeah. know, you can start doing skip trays, but it might be a few months before their address shows up in public records. so right,
0: right. Well, then what is the likelihood really, that if you do file a complaint for damages, what is the likelihood that that tenant will actually bring whatever funds are being? demanded on them. What are the chances of you getting paid? To, let's, slim let's to none. Say.
1: You know, slim just, to none, right? Yeah. I mean, you you could have a judgment in public records. Even if you get the judgment, you get to serve them. You get a judgment, it gets recorded in public records. If they ever go to buy a property, if they ever get, you know, if something happens, that'll be recorded. That'll show up. But um, there's people who are in the gray market economy and they're always kind of going under the radar. Yeah. I I just handled an eviction for a realtor who's also a real estate investor. And, you know, real quick before we get disconnected, you know, she inherited the tenant. And so she didn't get to do her own research and and due diligence. I'm sorry. There were there were two uh, two owners of the property. And so when I did some research, as I was getting ready for the eviction, that tenant, this was the third eviction or fourth eviction of that same tenant and his wife in like the last three years. (gasps) You know how long it takes to do a search in Miami-Dade County to see if there's been an eviction filed against that person? Five minutes.
2: <laughs> it's true. I mean, you can do a
1: background check. and, and yeah, spend I, I could get on the clerk's website and just give me their last name, their first name and do a search and boom. Yep. This person's been evicted like four times, very similar allegations, stolen oh, construction materials, non-payment of rent. You know, it's, you know, a little oh, bit goodness. of research goes a long way.
0: It does. It does. And that's one of the reasons that when I work with landlords, I always encourage them to let me do as much vetting as possible, Um, you know, request background searches, you know, all kinds of credit reports, police background, whatever. And we go down a a long list and we try to obtain as much information as we possibly can. And sometimes, you know, for the most part, I've been very lucky, I think. For the most part, I've found really great tenants for some of my landlords. but. You know, every now and again, you get an offer from someone that you're like, oh, I didn't even realize that someone's background report could look like this. <laughs> but, um Absolutely. you know, there is, there is a lot actually to cover when it comes to this topic. And, and there are subtopics still to tenancy uh, landlord and, and the tenant act. And there's so many things and so many branches we can go into, but I know that we're pressed for time because I don't want to get cut off. Yeah. So, and I promised you already that I would have you back. Cause there's so many other topics that I want to discuss with I'm you. You have it. a lot to share. Yes. <laughs> so, I'm going to cut it right here then because I don't want to get cut off. But I do thank you so much for imparting some of that knowledge. I know it's going to be useful to a lot of people because, like I said, most people just don't really understand that process. So if and when you do run into that situation, I want everybody out there to know that if you have a need for an attorney, a real estate attorney to help you with that, you should reach out to Doug Hiller.
1: Thank you so much.
0: It's so great to see you.
1: Likewise, Raquel. And I'll see you soon. Absolutely. More will be revealed.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) I love it. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Real Talk. We sure do appreciate it. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to the show wherever you consume podcasts. This way you'll get updates as new episodes become available. And if you found value in today's show, we'd appreciate it if you would help others discover this podcast. Until next time.